The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2022 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycindy.com. All right, well, hey, let me introduce myself, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, if you're looking for my Jesus and my friends, you made it to the right place. Yeah. Uh, my name's Kenny Hayes. I work on staff at Campus Outreach in West Michigan. Uh, I've been on staff for about 17, 18 years. I came to Christ in Tennessee at Tennessee Tech. Uh, so I got to work with college students in Tennessee and then in Central Illinois. And then me and a handful of other staff, we've since moved to Michigan in the last couple of years and have recently gotten started at Western Michigan University. Uh, so we're excited to be here with you guys to have our first group of students uh, here at the conference. Do we have any West Michigan students here? I'm just curious. None of them. <laughs> so don't let that scare you and just leave the room and be like, oh, it's Kenny. Um, but yeah, let, let's go ahead and start. I'll, I would like to start by sharing my story. I came to Christ in college at Tennessee Tech in a fraternity. Uh, fraternity brother of mine, his name was David. He introduced me to Christ kind of introduced me to the whole idea of Christianity. And immediately, God just kind of captured me with, with a passion for the love of Christ, uh, but also just kind of captured me with the thought of all these people around me that I knew that didn't already experience the love of Christ. And so early on, it just kind of became uh, my passion. I want to be able to share that love of Christ with other people and so naturally, being in college, uh, being in a fraternity, the, the first people that I began to kind of share this love of Christ with uh, were my fraternity brothers. And uh, as you can imagine, my, my story is probably a lot like yours, or some of yours at least. Uh, being in a fraternity and then giving my life over to Jesus just kind of had a, a dramatic lifestyle change. And so a lot of those guys, uh, in many ways, uh, really just didn't understand what had happened to me. Uh, you know, one day I'm kind of in the middle of the party with them, and then the next day I'm talking to them about Jesus, and that, that just didn't really register. And so uh, in many ways, the guys that one day were like some of my best friends uh, then became the people that were just kind of confused by my, my new life. Uh, some of those guys really began to, to make fun of me, um, to call me this Jesus freak or this fanatic. Uh, goody two shoes, and uh, not in, in my fear of them, uh, my own insecurity uh, really made it a challenge to want to sh uh, then share the love of Christ with them. And so, uh, even though that was my impulse, that was in my heart, uh, whenever I'd finally muster up the the courage to do so, a lot of times my my communication with them often would come across harsh or unloving, uh, maybe just confusing. I remember being confused myself, trying to just articulate this newfound love for Christ with them. They were probably confused. Uh, but, but there was another key relationship where I think back in those early, early years as a Christian uh, that I think it was, it was a very similar response, just that fear inside me. Uh, but it was a different type of fear. Uh, this was my uncle. Uh, his name was Mike. Uh, he, he, he wasn't someone I was necessarily afraid of, uh, but he was just someone who I would say I just kind of held near and dear. We had a very close relationship. Uh, I was born on his birthday. Uh, he, he gave me my favorite nickname. I was named after my, my, my dad, so he named me Deuce. 
Uh, so that if you want to, if you want to get close to, to Kenny, you can call me Deuce and we'll be like immediately best friends. Um, but one thing I knew about my uncle, other than he was just a fun loving guy, kind of the life of the party is, is he never went to church. And so I remember having that same impulse with my fraternity brothers. I wanted to share Christ with my uncle. There's this guy I love so much. Uh, but the fear I wrestled with, with him, uh, was just the fear of making things awkward in our relationship. Uh, or the fear of looking judgmental to him. Uh, I didn't want him to feel like I was looking down my nose at him uh, for not being a religious person. And so I remember holding out and saying, uh, next time, I'm going to wait for a better opportunity. And, and so about two years later, I remember visiting him in St. Louis. Uh, I'd been a Christian for about two years, and I, I kind of had that tug in my heart uh, but, but I didn't really follow through with it. And so I remember looking out the back window of our car, uh, waving to my Uncle Mike, telling myself again, next time. I'm going to wait for that next time. And so at the end of my talk, I'll, I will sh uh, tell you guys about that next time. Um, and so I just wanted to start out with the fact that God oftentimes puts people in our lives that don't make it easy <laughs> to share the love of Christ with them. Uh, that this thing that should be so easy, just, just share the thing that we love so much, it actually ends up being very hard. And certainly our family and our friends can be some of the most challenging, uh, but oftentimes it could just be a, a stranger on campus or an acquaintance. Maybe it's a teammate or a fraternity brother or a sorority sister, someone maybe you don't have that much history with. Uh, but oftentimes these relationships are not easy. And so uh, it can just be very difficult. And so that, that's what we're going to talk about today. What makes being a witness of Christ's love so hard? And we're going to look at two stories in the Scripture. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull those out. And, uh, and you, can, you can turn to Acts chapter 7 for our first. I'm not going to have a PowerPoint or anything, but we will be thumbing through a few different passages. Uh, but my hope is, is to look at these two stories uh, to derive some advice that can help us out in those relationships. Um, so the first story, I'll, I'll just tee it up as you're turning there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. And we'll, we'll read that in a moment. Uh, but just to tee it up, so this is the story of Stephen, uh, or Stephen's stoning, it might read in your Bibles. Uh, Stephen was the first Christian martyr, the first person to, to die as a Christian for his faith. And so we're going to read his story, and it's going to kind of encapsulate uh, what I've got on your outlines there. If, if you don't have an outline, raise your hand, and maybe somebody can run around the room and get you one. Uh, but the first story is kind of summarized with this, is love your enemies. So that's, that's the first point on your outline if you're taking notes. Uh, but the amazing thing is, is in Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen is preaching this sermon to this group of Jewish leaders and as a result, they kill him. But just before his death, his reaction to his enemies is absolutely amazing. And so we're going to read this story and try to understand how in the world could someone in, in the middle of their own murder respond to these people in love. So let's go there now. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Uh, read this with me. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. 
So just kind of p- picture that. These are Stephen's enemies, enraged, grinding their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Or in other words, he died. So when you read that story, or stories like this, you should stop and be amazed. If you are in his shoes, literally being stoned, murdered for your faith, and yet he responds with such grace and mercy, it begs the question, how or why? What what is going on inside of Stephen that can enable him to love his enemies? Uh, Well, if if you know much about Stephen, uh, he lived at the same time as Jesus Christ, uh, lived in the same part of the world as Jesus, and so he would be very familiar with Jesus' teachings. Uh, so this, this was not unique to Stephen, uh, but Jesus, uh, first and foremost, taught this idea of love your enemies. Uh, we, we know that, that Jesus first modeled it, or taught it, through his model with his life, with his very actions. And in fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, uh, in the middle of his murder uh, by the Jews, He says these exact same words in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Uh, He he says those exact same words. He says, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Uh, So Jesus, he is the author of this concept of loving your enemies. And he first teaches it with his model, with his life. But but well before he actually modeled it in that moment on the cross, he taught it in his sermons with people. And so we're going to look. Uh, he, he modeled it, but he also commanded this concept of love your enemies. Uh, so if you want, you, you can flip there, Matthew 5. You don't have to, but if you're taking notes, uh, this is Matthew 5, verse 43. Uh, so I'll, I'll read this to you. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, So in other words, he's saying you've heard it stated one way to hate your enemies, but Jesus' teachings always flip the script. (laughs) He always says things in a radical way where people hear his teaching and at first they're confused. How can this make sense? Does Jesus understand what he's saying? And you you can almost imagine Jesus saying, yes, that's right, you heard me. I said, love your enemies. In other words, everybody loves their friends. Everyone loves their family, but I tell you, even love your enemies. The power of this command should strike us. And so the the key point from this passage that I I want to draw from that, if you're taking notes, you might write this down, is, is being a Christian witness should be equated with a radical love for others, a radical love for others that does not make sense to the watching world. To be a witness for Christ should be encompassed by a radical love for others that doesn't make sense 
to the watching world. Okay, so, so many of you might be thinking, what's all this talk about enemies? Uh, I thought this seminar was titled, My Jesus and My Friends. Uh, why, why enemies? Why, why are we talking about enemies? And so what I want to do is try to unpack this passage a little bit more to try to understand the principle that, that Jesus is teaching with and connect it a little bit closer to home to our relationship with our friends and our families. And so in, in this passage, there's kind of hidden a principle uh, that is used all throughout the Bible. And the, the principle is simply this, where the author makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. The argument from the lesser to the greater. So in other words, if this small thing is true, then how much greater then would this large thing be true? You see where I'm going? The argument from the lesser to the greater. If this that is obvious, this lesser thing is true, then how much greater would this other thing be true? So in other words, if you are to even love your enemies, how much more then should we love our family and friends? In other words, Jesus is saying, if there's a way that you can love your family and friends, or excuse me, if there's a way that you can love your enemies, then you can definitely love your family and friends. And so he, he is raising a high bar. He's, he's saying, if this lesser thing, love your family and friends, or excuse me, if, this, if, if you are being called to this higher standard, then how much easier should it be to even love your family and friends? Uh, now, for some of you, this is already resonating with you. you. You are understanding, man, I know how hard it is to love my family. Uh, for some of you, there's, there's tension in your family. Some of the greatest wounds in your life have been inflicted by your family or, or maybe your close friends. And so this totally makes sense to you. Man, I, I know how hard it is to love my family. So then I totally get it. I definitely understand how difficult it would be to love my enemies. Uh, but then others of you are like, no, it's, it's not hard to love my family. They're my family. Or you're thinking, it's not hard to love my friends. They're my friends. I don't, I don't quite understand where Jesus is going with this. And if, if that's true for you, uh, then, then I would say, then I'm, I'm happy for you. Uh, if it's easy for you to love your family and friends, that, that probably means you have an awesome relationship uh, with, with your family and friends. Uh, but it could also mean this. Uh, maybe as a 19 or 20 year old, may, maybe you're kind of like me at, at that point in my life, is maybe you just haven't experienced enough life yet to go through some sort of family crisis to where you understand how difficult it would be to love your family in, in the middle of a family feud. Or, or if it's kind of easy for you to love your family and friends, maybe it's also because you've yet to share your newfound joy and love for Christ with your non-Christian family. That, that this love for Christ has yet to create tension in your relationships because you haven't quite gone there yet with your family. And so uh, I'll, I'll transition then. This, this passage uh, also implies another important truth, and, and that is this. Uh, even family and friends can turn into enemies. Even those who are closest to us can turn into enemies. Uh, so I, I remember back in 2001, whenever I first became a Christian, uh, going back to my hometown and hanging out with my high school buddies. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that my high school best friends became my enemies. Uh, but I would say that, that 
this passage resonated with what was happening in my relationship with them. You know, I remember kind of like my fraternity buddies on campus, these guys were also confused by my lifestyle change. Uh, so on, on our best moments, me and my high school buddies, uh, we, would, we were like the guys that would party together, right? And so when I came home and I started talking to them about being a follower of Christ, they couldn't comprehend like, man, Kenny, why won't you go out and party with us anymore? Uh, they, they were upset that I wouldn't drink with them anymore. Or I wouldn't go out and get high with them. And so it kind of disrupted this, this bond that we had. Uh, but not only were we party buddies together, uh, we also kind of shared this identity. Uh, me and some of my closest friends, we were atheists in high school. And so it was confusing to them. How can you kind of betray us with this new identity of this religious radical when we kind of share this identity as atheists with one another? And so although they weren't becoming my enemies, I also couldn't say that they, my best friends were still my best friends. And so uh, because Jesus had entered into my life now, it was creating this tension in this relationship. And so this passage where Jesus is saying to even love your enemies, now it's beginning to apply even to then my high school friends. Or, or another example, uh, I, would, I would say similar uh, relationship was with my dad. Again, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I would call my dad my enemy, not by any stretch of the, stretch of the imagination. Uh, but whenever I came home, I remember the first time trying to talk to my dad about my love for Christ. And that same tension or, or wedge was uh, driven between my relationship with, with, my, with my father. I remember thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm getting the opportunity to shove, share the love of Christ with my dad. And his immediate response was he screamed at me, I hate your God. <laughs> well, even though we weren't enemies, it kind of drives that wedge in our relationship. Like this, uh, this God that you hate is the God that I find my greatest joy in. And so now my own father is kind of put into this new category because I chose to become a follower of Christ. Not necessarily my enemy, but maybe quote unquote my enemy. And so I could begin to understand Jesus calling me to even love my enemies than how much more in this moment than to love my dad. And so I, I would ask you guys, uh, who, when you think about this passage, to even love your enemies, who comes to your mind? Who are the people that literally are your enemies or at least are your, your quote unquote enemies? Who are the people where this tension in your relationship exists? Uh, well, I would argue that those are the very people that God is calling you to be a witness of Christ's love to. That he, he wants you to lean into that tension. He wants you to lean into the difficulty of those, that, those relationships and love those people. Okay, so that, that brings me to the second story that I want to explore uh, that I've kind of summarized. So on your outline, story number two is receiving love is hard. Uh, I'll summarize this story with, with that statement. Receiving love is hard. Um, I mentioned I've been on staff for about 17 years. Uh, there, was, there was one year in particular uh, that I rounded up a bunch of uh, students off campus and we decided we were going to take a trip down to Panama City uh, for spring break. And so we were actually going down there uh, to share the love of Christ with people out on the streets of Panama City during spring break. And so I made it my goal uh, the first night that we were down there I wanted to find the biggest, scariest person that I could find because I was, I was taking this concept of love your enemy seriously and thinking I've got to show all these students that are coming with me 
that there is no limit to who Christ's love should be extended to. And so I thought, man, Jesus called us to love our enemies, and I need to find the scariest person I can and start with them so that the rest of the week, everybody would say, okay, if if we're even going to love that person, then certainly we need to love everyone else. And so we're walking down the strip, and I'm kind of like sizing people up, and I see this dude walking his bulldog. And I think to myself, that dude looks like a drug dealer. (laughs) And so I'm going to try to go share the gospel with him. And uh, lo and behold, after a couple minutes, turns out he is a drug dealer. (laughs) He, uh, You know, I'm not saying all people who own bulldogs are drug dealers, but I definitely uh, profiled this guy, but I I was right. And and so we uh, we got to talking. And it was, man, it was really eye-opening. It was really beginning to grip my heart as we began to explore the things of Christ. We had like this two-hour long conversation. And by the end of it, uh, he tells me, he says, Kenny, you have no idea all the evil things that I have done. There is no way I'm going to spend an eternity in heaven. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to implore him to throw himself upon Christ, uh, to receive Jesus' love. But he says, man, you just don't get it. I'm too messed up. And so uh, I say, well, let's get together and talk tomorrow. So we trade numbers. Uh, He takes me out to lunch the next day. And in the middle of this bar, I'm sharing the gospel with him again. And I think in that moment, he received the love of Christ. Uh, But but that story for me is kind of the pinnacle of me understanding this concept of receiving love is hard. I remember uh, looking at him thinking it's because of a belief that he had about himself that it was too difficult for him to let the love of Christ change him. And, and that belief was simply this, is, is I am too dirty for God to love me. I'm too dirty, I'm too messed up for Christ's love to cleanse me. Uh, but I witnessed it and I got to see Christ's love transform that guy's life as a 26-year-old drug dealer in Panama City uh, who then went on a summer project with Campus Outreach and and continued to follow Christ and go on. And and he entered a Bible college just a couple years after that and eventually got his degree. Um, But I I wanted to share that personal story of mine to tee up this next story that we're going to read straight out of the Bible. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there, uh, it's Mark chapter 14. Uh, We'll read this one together and, and just unpack it. Uh, but as you're turning to Mark 14, uh, I want to say this, uh, that, that that guy, that drug dealer that I mentioned, he kind of represents one side of the coin. Uh, he had this belief about himself that he was too dirty. Uh, but the thing that I've often found on the college campus, getting to share the gospel with college students, is on the other side of that coin is there's people who think that they're too clean. And so this concept of receiving Jesus' love is hard, not only applies to the person who's convinced they're too dirty for Jesus' love to cleanse them, it also applies to the person who believes that they're too clean. And so there's a guy at Bradley University that I I was sharing the gospel with for a number of months. Uh, I remember this was his problem. Uh, He always showed up to campus in his vineyard vines. Uh, he He was just that guy that always did the right thing. He was from a very wealthy family. He was very articulate. He, he, some of you wear vineyard vines, so I've already offended half the crowd. Uh, all you drug de- dealers out there have offended, or any, any pit bull owners, rather, I've offended you, and now I've offended everyone that wears vineyard vines. Uh, but, but he was just that polished guy. And I remember thinking, intellectually, he understands the message of Christianity. 
But the thing that's holding him back is this, he doesn't see his desperate need for Jesus' love because he thought he had it all together. And so you might be on either side of that coin or the people that you've been trying to share the gospel with might be on either side of that coin. And the point of all of that is to say receiving Jesus' love is hard. It's hard for everybody, whether you think you're too dirty or you think you're too clean. And we're, we're going to see that in this text now in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 14. Uh, so let's go there. Uh, reading in verse, uh, verse 1, uh, Mark chapter 14. Read with me. Now the Passover... Oh, sorry. Before we read, uh, to preface the story, there are three main characters in this story, or three people who interact with Jesus. And so we're going to look at each of those different characters and see what we can learn from their interactions with Jesus. Okay, let's, let's read verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill Him. Okay, so that's, that's the first character. Uh, these religious leaders. So what do we observe about them in this text? Or how do we see that receiving Jesus' love was hard for them? <laughs> uh, cer- certainly it was hard for them, right? They, they clearly didn't receive Jesus' love. Uh, they are seeking to kill Him. Uh, they, they would be like these enemies that Jesus was just telling us that we should love. Uh, so w- what is it about them that makes it hard for them to receive the love of Christ? Uh, the irony here is their religious experience. Of all the three characters in the story, they might be the ones that have the most exposure to religion. They might be the ones that know the most about the Bible, and yet they are blinded by their love for religion, their love for power, and their love for their reputation or for their ego. So that, that's the first character. Um, let's move on to verse, uh, verse 3. We'll pick back up. While Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, this is verse, verse 3, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So this is our second character. Did you catch her name? No, it says an unnamed, it just says a woman. Uh, The story here doesn't even name her. And so our second character, we're just going to refer to her right now as the unnamed woman. Uh, But the irony of this story is on the totem pole of society, she would be the one that is lowest in our story. She has the least stature in the story. And you almost get the impression from the author who's writing this story, he doesn't even name her to illustrate that point, that that she has the lowest stature, and yet she is the one that we learn the most from, as you'll soon see in this story. Not the one at the top, but the one at the bottom, we're actually going to learn the most about what it means to receive the love of Christ. All right, now pick back up in verse 4. This will be our third character. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. That's going to make this really difficult. <laughs> Can somebody try to close that little door? 
At my house, when we like clean up the dishes after dinner, we usually flip on the rap music and have a little dance party as we're like cleaning up. So that music is going to be really distracting for me. Thanks, Alon. Okay, that's a lot better. All right, where was I at? Where was I at? Verse 4, thank you. All right, let's read that again. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Uh, so this is our third character in the story. Or in other words, we're going to call them the indignant men. Uh, the, the irony of this character is, is these were actually some of Jesus' closest followers. Uh, you just have to trust me on that one, but these are some of the 12 disciples, some of Jesus' closest followers, and they're the ones in this story that the writer says that they were indignant at this woman. Uh, so what do we learn about them? Um, if, you, if you flip to John, we, we won't go there now. John's telling of this exact same story. He actually singles out Judas, uh, who right after this turns around. Judas is one of Jesus' 12 followers, and he turns around and he betrays Jesus over to the people who kill him. And so I think what's happening here is, is Judas is probably leading the pack. Uh, he was the one who was most indignant. And at least some of, other, some of other Jesus' closest followers kind of go along with his grumbling. And they're looking at this woman and they're saying, what in the world? Like, what are you doing? And so uh, what was it about Judas or these other guys that blind them from receiving the love of Jesus? It was his greed it was his love of money. He couldn't even see Jesus clearly because his greed had blinded him. And so even, even some of Jesus' closest followers having, are having a hard time receiving the love of Jesus. Okay, so that, that's our three characters in this story. Uh, but now let's, let's take a closer look to try to understand what in the world's going on here and, and how or why is this unnamed woman the one who seems to get it? Uh, why is it that she, the least character of all three characters, the one that seems to understand and receive the love of Jesus? Uh, so I want to first point out, what did these indignant men not say to her? Uh, what did they not rebuke her for? They, they could have said something like this. Uh, what are you doing? Why are you pouring... I can't, you just poured this stuff all over this dude's head. That's crazy. What, what are you doing? Uh, th but they didn't say that, right? It wasn't shocking to them that she poured this oil on his head. And so for us, we read a story like this and it's kind of confusing. Uh, let's just admit here or let's just acknowledge that all the parties that we go to, we ain't ever seen this happen, right? <laughs> How many of you have ever been to a party and some woman just breaks out this thing and just dumps some oil on some dude's head? That, that would look really weird. And we would say, okay, she's lost her mind. Uh, she, this don't make any sense. It's just pouring all over him. This is ridiculous. But they don't rebuke her for that. What, did, what does it say? They don't rebuke her for pouring perfume on Jesus. They rebuke her for pouring expensive perfume on Jesus. So let, let's try to understand... Why is that so significant? Why are they rebuking her for pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' head? Uh, so, so think about this for a second. Um, if, if she had poured some like Calvin Klein 
you know, some $50 or $100 perfume on Jesus' head, that might not have elicited a response. But what was her perfume like? Uh, what, did, what does the text say? Yeah, this, this perfume was worth an entire year's wages. Uh, if, if you read some commentaries on this, uh, because it says it's pure nard, uh, this type, this specific type of oil would have been a family heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation, from mother to daughter, from mother to daughter. So not only did this perfume hold extreme value financially, monetarily, it also held extreme personal value. And you've got to get that to understand the thrust of what's going on in this weird, strange story. She takes this thing that is most precious to her, and in the middle of this party, she dumps it on Jesus' head. I read some commentaries, and it said that this kind of thing happened that feast. That it wasn't, it, it, it's weird to us, but it would not have been weird to them. But the thing that the disciples rebuked her for was this radical wastefulness of money. So in other words, they're looking at, uh, many commentators would accredit this, uh, this woman to Mary. Not, not Jesus' mother Mary, but uh, Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Um, I'm probably just going to call her Mary, so just, just go, with, go with me on that. But they're looking at her saying, Mary, what have you done? Why have you wasted this money? You are crazy. Why would anyone do that? So if we want to understand why, why does this make sense in her mind, we need to look at how does Jesus respond. And that will give us a little insight into to why her response was appropriate. The disciples say it was not appropriate, but what does Jesus say? Uh, let's go to verse 6. Uh, Jesus says this, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then jump down to verse 9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, what Jesus is saying is what Mary did was 100% the right thing to do. Though they have second-guessed her actions, what she has done was 100% appropriate. And not only that... Jesus goes on to pay her one of the biggest compliments in all of Scripture. He says, for all eternity, Mary is going to be remembered for this thing that she did with this perfume. Why is that? Or what do we learn from that? Uh, Mary will be famous throughout the whole world for all of history for doing what looked like nonsense to everyone else. So what did she do? She, you, you got to get this, this is the most important point of the talk today. She made much of Jesus. The reason Mary will be famous is because she pointed to Jesus and said, He is the famous one. And she didn't care if she looked crazy to everyone else in the party such that they would come over here and rebuke her. She didn't care a thing about what everyone else was thinking about her. What did she care about? She cared about making much of Jesus. And so she poured out all this valuable money. She poured out her family heirloom on Jesus because she loved Jesus so much because she had received the love of Jesus. 
Okay, so I want you to picture this scene one more time. Uh, the perfume's going everywhere. Everyone's watching. Some are in disgust. Some are confused. Mary, what, what are you doing? You look like a fool. But she didn't care if everyone else thought that she looked like a fool. So in other words, her response should, should have shaken them up. Jesus saying, she's seeing everything rightly when everyone else is not seeing it rightly. And her actions, her life is so radical that it's stopping everyone else and making them confused and saying, what? Why am I not seeing the world rightly? And she is. So the key point from this story is this, if you want to write it down. Being a witness for Christ, being a Christian witness, should be equated with such a radical love for Jesus that it doesn't make sense to the watching world. In other words, in your life, in your relationships, are you living in such a way that says, Jesus is my everything? Do you see how this story actually relates to us being witnesses in this world? So often we want to blend in. We want to avoid what's awkward. We want to just do this, stick with the status quo and hope that we can lead people to Christ and have them experience the love of God. But yet we just kind of do the bare minimum, but not Mary. Mary, the least likely candidate, she's not afraid to pour her life out such that Jesus is magnified. Uh, so in other words, our life should bug people. Our life should say, just like Mary's, I don't get it. What, what's so awesome about this Jesus guy that you would be doing such ridiculous, radical things that it would kind of stop people in their tracks and say, I might not understand it, but I can't ignore it. You know, think, think about Mary's role in these religious leaders' story. She's one more person that has confused them. They're, they got to be thinking, how in the world does Jesus capture so many people's attention? Look at this woman. Look at what she's done. What is it about this Jesus that has caused her to do this? Or for the 12 disciples, they ought to be asking themselves some, some similar questions, right? Uh, first, what should they say? Uh, they ought to respond, man, Jesus just rebuked us and made us look like fools. Uh, re remember what the, uh, the passage said about them? It said they rebuked her harshly. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes them for rebuking her. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, I wish you were more like her. She gets it and you don't. I want you to be so in love with me that you would get it just like this woman gets it. And so that, that brings me to my next main point on your outline. And that, that is the overflow principle. And so if, if everything I'm saying hasn't quite connected, I'm, I'm hoping to make it uh, that much simpler by explaining uh, what I'm calling the overflow principle. Uh, so, so let's go there now. Uh, wh what do I mean by this overflow principle? Uh, simply put, in other words, Mary was able to pour out because Jesus had poured in. She overflowed with worship of Jesus, and it was on display for everyone to see. Her life was a life of overflow such that the onlooking world looked at her and they thought of one thing, Jesus. 
And so the, the idea of overflow should be this. Our lives should be so in love. We should be so in love with Jesus and the way that we live, people should think less about us and more about the Jesus that we serve or that we follow. Uh, so, so in a basic image, I want you to picture a target. You guys know a target that you would shoot like a bow and arrow at. Uh, so you've got the center, the bullseye, the circle in the middle, and then you've got two rings around the bullseye. Uh, the center of that bullseye represents the thing that we worship, the thing that we love. Uh, the next outer ring would be those relationships that are closest to us. And then the, the, the second ring would be those relationships that are kind of distant to us. And the, the idea of worship, or excuse me, overflow, would be whatever's in the center of that, that bullseye would bubble over or spill over into those next rings, into those next groups or relationships of people. And that, that's the same concept of love your enemies, Right? the easier thing should be that your life would flood over to those who are closest to you, to your family and friends. But then your love or worship of Jesus should bubble over so much that it spills out even into the outer ring, even to your enemies. So that those who are closest to you see it, but even your enemies would look at you and say, what is it about this Jesus that you serve? And so this, this really is the simplest principle uh, in the planet, right? Uh, this just naturally happens. Uh, for me right now, I'm, I'm in love with mountain biking. <laughs> and so um, if you're close to me, you can't spend like a week w- with me without knowing that Kenny loves mountain biking. Uh, when, when I moved to Michigan, uh, I just started buying up all the gear, right? Like I lived in central Illinois, just one huge cornfield, no mi- mountain biking going on there. Uh, but I moved to Michigan and people like to mountain bike there. And so I bought a new bike. I dropped some serious cash on a new bike. Uh, after a couple months, you know, I had the new shirt, the new, sh- the new pants, because you get out there and you're like flying off your bike, hitting trees and rocks and stuff. I got so ridiculous. This is, this is embarrassing, y'all. I even bought the, the skinny tights. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I was unashamed. It's like, if I'm going to go in, I'm going all in. And so if, if you're close to me, you know Kenny's about mountain biking. Uh, but even I'm, I meet new people and I start talking to them about mountain biking. Why, why is it? <laughs> because I just love mountain biking. It just kind of spills forth from my life. Uh, and so it's challenging for me to think, do I have as much enthusiasm to talk to people about Jesus as I do about mountain biking? Uh, how about you? What's at the center of your bullseye? What's the thing that is overflowing from your life? What's the thing that you naturally just love to talk to? To people about? Is it your Jesus or is it something else? Uh, well, well, secondly, uh, the last principle on your outline is this. It's what I call the proximity principle or the, the nearness principle. If you want to grow as a witness for Christ, uh, you need to understand the proximity principle or, or the nearness principle. Uh, so just to make this real simple or basic, uh, you guys know magnets, right? You know how magnets work? Some of you are probably way smarter than me and can actually explain how magnets work. I don't really know how magnets work, uh, but I at least know that you put a piece of metal close to a magnet, what happens? You know, it, it has that magical power that just kind of draws that metal in. There's an attraction there. And that's because of this nearness principle. In other words, if that piece of metal is not near enough, those magical powers never get engaged. But you get the, the magnet close enough, it just automatically happens. And so what I want to illustrate 
with that point is this, is oftentimes it's not necessarily that we don't love people enough to share Jesus with them. It's that we're actually not near enough to people so that it just naturally happens. I, I believe that if you're a Christian today and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you will share Jesus with people that are close to you. The overflow principle told us that, right? You are going to tell people that you love about the thing that you love. It, it, it will happen. No one will be able to stop you. I don't care if people hate mountain biking. I'm going to keep pushing and pushing until I can find somebody that wants to become a mountain biker with me. You're going to share Jesus with the people that you love because you love him so much. But our problem is we're often like that magnet that's not near enough or close enough to people where that Holy Spirit magical power just kind of kicks in. Now, you, you're probably looking at me thinking, dude, you're an idiot. I've got plenty of friends, and I am super close to all my friends. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I, I would, so let me, let me define nearness as we close. Uh, nearness is less about the physical proximity, and it's more about the personal understanding of the individual. And what I have, observe, have observed about college students is oftentimes, over the years, oftentimes our relationships stay so superficial that we're not actually that close to one another. We might be in the same room or we might be getting to know people, but we're not actually getting that close to them to understand them, to understand their deep needs. Uh, so, so to illustrate this, let me ask you this. Do you think Stephen, when he was getting stoned, felt near to those people? Or do you think relationally he was near to the Jewish leaders? My, my argument is, is no. Uh, he was not. Uh, it, wasn't about, it wasn't even about his relationship with them. So how in the world could Stephen be near to his enemies? And, and it's this. In a word, it's understanding. He understands something that these guys did not uh, he had a personal understanding of humanity's needs, their deep, deep, deep need for a Savior. And that was enough. And so uh, my promise to you is this, is the longer you're in Christ, the longer you're a Christian, the longer you grow in understanding of the world and its shortcomings, the more you understand people, you'll begin to see it doesn't matter what's on the exterior you'll begin to understand that all of humanity, all people are, li are essentially the same. They all share the same need. Uh, it it, it kind of comes to the point where you don't even see the drug dealers anymore. You don't see color of skin, black, white, Mexican, or whatever. You look past everything on the outside and you see what matters most because you get so near to people and you see their desperate need for a Savior. And, and the second way that you can get near to people is to understand their story. Uh, the way I'm defining nearness is, is you have to be close enough to people that you understand their personal story that your heart is compelled to want to share Jesus with them. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the story of my dad. It was, it was years after I became a Christian before we were able to have a profitable conversation 
about spiritual things. Uh, but what changed is I started taking time to understand my dad's story. I, I had a ton of bitterness towards my dad in our relationship, but once I began to walk a mile in his shoes and understand his relationship with his parents and his childhood, my compassion for my dad grew, and so I was then compelled to share the love of Jesus with him. So, so in closing, uh, let's return for a moment to Stephen's story. Uh, what, what can we learn about Stephen's story? It's this. Um, we know that Stephen got it, right? He went to his deathbed praying for his enemies. Uh, but the neat thing about Stephen's story is he was a disciple of the 12 disciples. The 12 who didn't get it, who missed the whole thing that was going on with the perfume and Mary, those guys were the ones who taught Stephen. And we know that Stephen got it because he even went to the end of his life pouring out the love for Christ for others. And so what we can gain from that is, is just like the 12 disciples who don't always get it, we too are not always going to get it. We, we, like them, are going to fail. Uh, I told you I would return back to my story of my Uncle Mike. Uh, so, just a few months after I was looking out the rear window, waving goodbye to my family, thinking next time, a couple months rolled by and I get a call from my mom and Uncle Mike had died of a heart attack in his bed. I missed my opportunity. And I will regret that for the rest of my life. Thinking about that makes me want to live with a sense of urgency to not waste those opportunities. But like the 12 disciples who I know didn't always get it, I can have hope that, that God is going to even use my failures and my shortcomings and that as I move into the future, that God can use me despite my weaknesses. And so I trust that you too have missed opportunities and there's people in your life that you're holding out for the next time. But I would urge you not to wait, but to take that opportunity. Uh, so, so my application for you that I, would, that I would urge you is just to write down three names, a name of a family member, a name of a high school best friend, and a name of one of your college friends or acquaintances that you begin to pray for and ask God to give you the boldness to share the love of Christ with. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conycnd.com.